Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you got your Bible with you, that's the fourth book of the New Testament. Uh, I want you to have your Bible every time we gather in this place. It's really important to me uh, that you know what I'm saying this morning and what I say in this place and what any of us say uh, is not our thoughts, our opinions, our feelings, or our views, but rather what God has revealed to us in his word. And so again, John chapter 1, would love for you to turn there right now. As you're getting there, I'll introduce myself because we'll be spending some time together this week. My name is Brian Howard, uh, and I'm a pastor in a city called Westlake Village at a church called Calvary Community Church. Uh, that's in Southern California. Any Southern California churches in the house today? Okay. Oh, oh, very, very few. Okay. Well, hey, glad you're here um, and uh, looking forward to a great week. I want to tell you a few things about myself that'll just kind of give some context to a lot of the things I say. Uh, the three things I love to talk about when I introduce myself to groups of people, the three most important things about me, uh, as we talk about even the, mo the most important thing about us is, is what we th comes to mind when we think about God. Uh, but for me, the things that have shaped me um, in the midst of following Jesus is the first. Okay. Here's the first. Um, in 2013, so just over nine years ago, um, I married this woman right here. Um, and so that is my wife, Danielle. Uh, I married her back in 2013. Danielle is an amazing woman. She is kind. She is charming. She's beautiful. She's wise. Um, filled with empathy and love for the Lord. Uh, and just a pro tip in your life, marry someone who loves Jesus more than you, okay? Go do that, and your life will just flourish in some amazing ways. And that's what I did. I, I love um, this woman, um, and we've just had an amazing run here for nine years. Uh, in the midst of that nine years, I'll tell you the second thing about me, uh, is we have had three children, okay? Uh, and so in 2017, we had our first child, our daughter Grace. So this is Grace right here. Uh, Grace and I have a deal. Uh, and it's every time I go up to speak at camps like this, I have to take her out for ice cream after, okay? Uh, and so this was last time I went and spoke at a camp. I took her out to ice cream. Big Sunday. She loves it. And so I'll be doing that again next week. That is Grace, who is thoughtful and kind and wonderful and sweet uh, and just hilarious. And so that's my daughter, Grace. She's four years old. Uh, here's my son, Noah. Uh, Noah is two years old and full of life and vitality. He is just always a hoot. He always makes me laugh. About 80% of the time he is charming, and 20% of the time he is going to tear this world down to the ground, okay? That, that's Noah, and I love him to pieces. Uh, and then three months ago, we had this little nugget. Uh, yeah, this is hope, uh, and hope is just so sweet and so kind, uh, and we love her. She, you know, and I say kind, literally the only thing she can do is smile at me, and I'm like, you like me. You know, like, I love hope. So that's my three kids. Again, I'm married to my wife, Danielle, Danny, uh, and then I've got great. Uh, uh, Grace and Noah and Hope. So got married, had kids. Let me tell you the third and most important thing that ever happened to me in my life. When I was about your age, I encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ and it changed my whole life. When I was your age, I met Jesus and it turned my entire world upside down. See, here's how it happened. I grew up in what you would call a Christian household, but I didn't realize growing up how strange my Christian household was. See, my parents next year had been married for 40 years, and so they'd been together, and yet early on in their marriage, they made a decision based on how they grew up going to church that they would go to different churches. So my dad is like this Irish Catholic man who would go to mass every Sunday. And my mom was like this Dutch Presbyterian lady who would go to her church every Sunday. And so for me growing up, the choice was always, which church do you want to go to? And my dad's church was always shorter and my mom's was a little longer. But by the time I hit middle school, my mom's had donuts and a ping pong table. So I was all in there, okay? So the choice for me growing up was which church. But then when I was about your age, it's actually the summer going into my eighth grade year, so a little younger than you. Going into eighth grade year, the choice changed for me. 
See, for me, it was always, which church do you want to go to? And then I was at camp, a camp just like this. And at that camp, I had the decision, a choice to make of not which church was I going to go to, but what was I going to do with Jesus and the claims he made about his life and the sacrifice he made on the cross. What was I going to do with that? And I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ, and it turned my whole world upside down. Fast forward a couple years, I'm at another camp, uh, again, just like this, and I made a decision about reading the Bible and knowing that the Bible is going to be this major part of my life. Fast forward a few years from that, I'm at another camp, and I had the opportunity to start to think through what my life was going to look like, and God started calling me into full-time ministry. And over and over and over again, I'm at a camp setting just like this, and the God of the universe met me. And this is what I want for you this week. Like this week, we're going to talk about the truth of God. We're going to talk about the truth of Jesus. We're going to talk about what the scriptures teach. But I want to be clear. I don't want you to just encounter truths or ideas or philosophies this week. I want you to encounter a person. And that person is the resurrected Jesus. And even if you don't want anything to do with him, he wants everything to do with you. Even if you've been drifting far from him, he hasn't stopped pursuing you. And this week, what I want you to see here in the Gospel of John is not an idea, a philosophy, or a way of living, but a person who calls you into a relationship with him. I want you to see how it begins. John chapter 1, verse 1, if you look at your Bibles, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was made has been made. Now here's the beginning of the book of John. It begins with these words, in the beginning, and... If you're a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, you might know that these words echo back to the very first words of the Bible. Sarah was talking about this last night, this creation story where in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth. And so John chapter 1 begins the same way that Genesis chapter 1 begins with a claim. And it's a stunning claim. And I want to make this claim this morning. You ready for this claim? It's so wild. The claim in the beginning of the Gospel of John is the same claim in the beginning of Genesis. And that claim is that the universe began to exist. Now, I know that doesn't sound like interesting at all to you. You're not like, whoa, no way. If you're writing down notes, you're like, wow. No, no, no. Write this down. The universe began to exist. And here's why this is such a scandalous claim. Because for almost all of human history, no one believed that was the case. In fact, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, there was this belief that the universe was eternal. It's always been here. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planet, everything's been here. It's changed, but the universe is eternal. In fact, that was true all the way up until about 100 years ago. And people who believed the silly thing the Bible taught, that the universe began to exist at a certain point, were thought about silly. Scientists looked down on them. The smart and wise philosophers said those silly people of the book who believed the universe began to exist, don't they know? Science shows the universe was eternal. And then, in the 1920s, in the 1920s, a man named Edwin Hubble, if you think of the Hubble Space Telescope, this is him. This is his like genius thing. He looked through his, 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 uh, his, his scope, right? And he starts to see something crazy in the universe. Here's what he sees. He says that the universe is expanding in every direction. Based on the red light shift he sees, he sees that the universe is expanding in every direction. And because of those findings, they start to realize something that actually has become so normal to you, you don't even think it's crazy. What they realized is that the universe is expanding in every direction, which means... At one point, it was smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, down to a place of infinite density. And that place of infinite density ultimately exploded to cause the universe. And this is what you will hear is the Big Bang Theory. And so here's what you need to know. 
Up until 100 years ago, no one thought the universe began to exist. Everyone just assumed it had always been around. And yet 100 years ago, modern science finally catches up with the Bible. And here's what they recognize. Here's what um, Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle says. He says the Big Bang Theory, this idea that the universe actually began to exist, requires creation of matter from nothing. This is because when one goes back in time, one reaches a point where, in Hoyle's words, the universe was shrunk down to nothing at all. Thus, the Big Bang model of the universe seems to require that the universe began to exist and was created out of nothing. Uh, Like, again, modern science is finally catching up to what the Bible has always said, that there was nothing, and then suddenly the universe came into existence. And modern science does not have a good answer for how that happened or why that happened. But the Gospel of John does. You know what the Gospel of John says? The universe began to exist. And what caused the universe to exist, according to the Gospel of John, is this phrase here called the Word. The Word. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was made has been made. In other words, John is going to assert that the universe began to exist, and the reason it began to exist was the Word. Now, this word, word, in English, it comes from the Greek word logos. Lagos, in the Greek mind, was this idea of this impersonal form, this impersonal being, this impersonal sort of um, power that exists logically and reasonably in the universe. So the Greek people would have heard the word and thought of this impersonal, powerful force. Hebrew people hearing this word would have thought, okay, the logos, the word, that's the God, the personal God of Israel who speaks. And here's what John says. That infinitely powerful and intimately personal word was actually one thing that created the entire universe. And what we're going to see as we continue through John chapter 1 is that this word who was with God and was God isn't some impersonal force. It is a person, and it is a person with a name, and that person's name is Jesus. Like in other words, the very beginning of the Gospel of John says the entire reason that there are atoms and galaxies and oceans and hair and fingernails and people and animals, the whole reason there's anything in this world is because Jesus brought it in to existence. Now, again, if you're going like, why are we hammering on this? We get it. God created the world. I actually don't think most people get it. Or if they do get it, they don't understand the implications of it. Because here's what I want to assert to you this morning. That because God created the world, he gets to define the world. Because creators always get to define what they have created. When you create something, when you own something, when you have made it, you get to define what it's all about. It's like this. This is not a trick question. Raise your hand if you have a social media account of any kind. Instagram, TikTok, MySpace, anything, whatever you kids these days use. Okay, this is it. All right, so at some point, you created the account, right? You didn't create the software, the algorithm, any of that, but you created the account. And you went in, and you created the account. And as the account creator, you have authority to put your name, your photo, your bio. And you can use like a literal bio of who you are, one of those artsy lines where everyone's like, ooh, how mysterious, right? Like you can do that. You can put your LinkedIn bio. You get to decide what the aesthetic of your grid is, right? Like you get to create it. It's your deal. And why do you get to do that? Because you created it. If I stepped in and said, I want to change your social media profile, I wouldn't have the authority. Why? Because I'm not the creator. If the person sitting to your left or your right or your mom wanted to change it, they're not allowed to do it. Why? Because they didn't create it. And when you create something, you get to define it. And can I just say something shocking this morning that you may not have thought through? Eyes on me. 
you didn't create you, so you don't get to define you. Because you didn't create yourself, you do not get to define yourself. The one who created you gets to define you, and the one who created you, according to John, is Jesus. And so I know in our world today it says, like, you do you. You make your own reality. You define yourself. You tell us who you are, and we'll just believe you. But that is not the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is that the God of the universe created you. And because he created you, he gets to define you. And hear me, because he created this world and this entire universe, he gets to define it too. We don't get to tell God what good, bad, right, wrong, justice, injustice looks like. God gets to tell us that because he created this. See, once we understand the very beginning of the Bible, and the very beginning of the Gospel of John says that because God created everything, he gets to define everything, then we are humbled before him. And we start asking the question, what does God have to say about me, rather than what do I feel or sense or want people to believe about me? Because God created the world, he gets to define it. I want to show you how it goes on this way, verse 4. It says, in him, again, that's in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the assumption at the beginning of the book of John is the assumption that there is darkness in the world. When the book of John uses darkness, it doesn't just mean literal darkness. It means that kind of moral confusion, that, that pain and brokenness, the kind of world where things aren't going right. And hear me, I know some of you in this room, you're not even Christians. I'm so glad you're here this week. But even if you're not a Christian, could you just agree with me that this world's pretty messed up? Could you agree with me that things are not exactly going well? Like, I don't even think you have to be a believer in Christ to say the world is messed up. And here's the assumption of the Gospel of John, that the world is deeply broken, that there is darkness in this world. And John is going to argue that darkness is because we, instead of listening to what God says about the world, what God says about us, we said, forget you, God, I'm going my own direction. And because humanity did that, we are plunged into darkness. And here's the metaphor and the image for the Gospel of John. I'm going to ask the lights to go down in the room right now. This is what the Gospel of John says is true about the world. It's darkness. We can't see straight. We don't exactly know what's going on. There's moral confusion everywhere. There's strife between people. There's strife between nations. There's injustice everywhere. There's hate and there's oppression. And there's all of these terribly confusing, horrible darkness that's just permeated our world. And yet here's what John chapter 1 and verse 5 says. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want you to see this light as it shines into the darkness here. Let's turn on this light. See, here's the wonderful thing about a light shining in the darkness. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You ever notice that darkness is always pushed back by light? You ever notice that when it comes to light, like the darkness never creeps into the light. It's always the light cutting through the darkness. And if this light were on for a thousand years, it would continue to cut through the darkness. Why? Because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what's my point here? We live in a world full of confusion and hate and pain and anger. We live in a world full of moral unclarity where no one's sure what's true or false or right or wrong or good or bad. And what John says is the light is shining in the darkness. What does this mean? This means that there's all sorts of people in our world who claim to not love God or not know God or don't even believe God exists. And you know what's so cool? The light remains shining in the darkness. That some of you are on a high school campus and you are one of the only Christians there. No one believes, no one's with you. Everyone thinks you're ridiculous for believing in God. And yet the light continues to shine in the darkness. 
We live in a culture that has lost its ever-loving mind with relation to everything. Again, I don't even think you have to be a Christian to look around and go, we've lost our minds. And yet in the darkness, the light continues to shine. This is what John is trying to communicate. We don't have to fight something. We don't have to rage against it. The light is going to continue to shine, and the darkness will never overcome it. In the beginning, God says, let there be light. And since the beginning, the light of God's truth, the light of God's justice, the light of what God has to say is shining in this world. And I think there are two options for you. You know what a lot of Christians do? A lot of Christians see the darkness in the world and they see the light, and their choice is to shake their fist at the darkness, to be angry about sin, to be angry about people far from God, to shake their fist at everything they see on their television, everything they see on social media, to shake their fist at the darkness in this world. And you can do that. There are plenty of Christians who do. There are plenty of people who claim to love Jesus and walk after him, whose whole lives consist of just shaking their fist at the darkness in this world. But I want you to know something. I've not come here to shake my fist at the darkness. I have come here to do something entirely different, and I want you to do this as well. I am not here to shake my fist at the darkness. I am here this week to point my finger to the light, to say the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot and will not and never will overcome it. And that's what I hope for you as well. What I want for you is not to just rage at all of the immorality of the world, but rather to point your finger at the light and say the light of Jesus shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. This is the metaphor that he's going to use. John is going to set us up with there's darkness in this world. The light is shining in the midst of it. Despite the fact that we have walked away, that light continues to shine. And I want you to see how it continues this way. Our lights will come back up here. Here's how the text continues here in John chapter 1. It continues this way. It says, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Okay, so when it says John here, there's two Johns at play. There's John who writes the Gospel of John, who's one of Jesus' best friends. There's John. And then there's John the Baptist, who's actually going to baptize Jesus. And when it says John here, I think it means both. Both John the Gospel writer and John the Baptist, a man sent from God whose name was John, he came as a witness to testify concerning to the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So, so like in other words, John comes onto the scene. John the Baptist comes onto the scene. John the Apostle comes onto the scene. And here's what we see here. Their job in verse 7 and in verse 8 is to be a witness to the light. Like in other words, their job is to point their finger to the light. Why? Because John wants to be a witness to the light. He wants to be in awe of it. He wants to see it and actually be overwhelmed with the goodness of the light. Almost like when the lights came on just a minute ago, did anyone else have that problem where their eyes were kind of shut and the lights come on and they were kind of overwhelmed by it? Like that's what John wants us to be. We should be the type of people who bear witness to the light, who see the light and are actually responding with worship and adoration and an overwhelmed kind of awe toward the light. And hear me, that's what I want for you this week. Like I've come here this week not just to tell you good things or like to get you to think about things. The ultimate goal of this week is not knowledge. The ultimate goal of this week is worship. It's that you would be the type of individual who worships Jesus, who lifts up Jesus, who adores Jesus. And yet the danger every time we come into a camp like this is that you would miss the point that we're actually here to worship Jesus, to make much of him and to exalt him. Like, let me put it to you this way. Um, raise your hand if you have been to Hume Lake. Summer camp, winter camp, doesn't matter, anything. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Three times or more. Three times or more. Okay. I'm not going to speak to all of you. You can put your hands down. I'm going to speak to those of you who just raised your hand. If you have been to Hume Lake three times or more, you know what the great danger is this week? 
The great danger isn't that you won't have a great week or won't have a good time or won't learn anything. The great danger of this week is that you will spend the week comparing, contrasting, assessing, and critiquing Hume Lake rather than thinking about what Hume Lake is all about, which is Jesus. The great danger is that you would come into this week and be like constantly thinking about camp and like the way camp is supposed to be. And so you get into assessment mode. And I've just seen far too many students come to camp and get into assessment mode, critique mode. Like this is a burden I have for your generation because there's this kind of like constant critique of everything where you're like, that video, the beginning was good, but the middle, eh." you know, like you're just like in constant critique mode. Or you're looking at me as the pastor preaching and instead of like listening to what the word of God might have to say through me, you're just like assessing. You're like, I liked him better. I liked him worse. Last year's guy was great. This guy's terrible. You know, like, I don't know. Like you're just constantly in assessment mode. And here's my challenge for you, especially if you've been to camp three or more times. Man, don't fall into assessment mode this week. Don't be in constant critique mode where you're constantly just assessing everything Hume's doing. Because here's what I've learned. The people who are in constant assess and critique mode never actually get to enjoy and experience the life that God has for them. But when you just receive it, when you say, you know what, my job is to be a witness to all that God is doing this week. My job this week isn't to assess and critique and analyze and evaluate everything, but rather just say, God, what do you have for me this week? I want to bear witness to your light. When you do that, God will give you a remarkable week. It goes on this way in verse 9. It says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is the true light that gives light to everyone. We talked about the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, now here's what I want to point out. This week we have this theme, right? And, And here's the theme right here. Truth be told. We're talking about truth and the truth of Jesus and the truth of the scriptures and the truth of God. And you might go, okay, there's all this talk about light, and there's all of us talk about truth. What's the deal here? And here's what I want to do. I want to bring these concepts together for you. And here's why I know you know this is true already, that light and truth is always the same thing. That to be enlightened, to walk in the light, is to walk in the truth. The reason I know that is because if I walked up to you and I was confused about something, I said, hey, I'm in the dark here a little. Can you help me out? You would know that I meant I'm confused and I don't understand the truth. If I said, I don't understand what's going on here, can you enlighten me a little bit? You would understand that I meant I am not knowing what the truth is and I need you to help me understand it. If I said, can you shed some light on this right now? You know what I'm asking for. I'm asking for the truth. That to walk in the light, to see the light, is to walk in the truth. And here's what John wants for us. John wants for us to know that Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone that comes in the world. And that to see the light is to walk in the truth. See, here's what Jesus wants for you. Jesus wants you to understand the truth. He wants you to get the truth. He wants you to know and deeply appreciate the truth. I want to talk about truth for a little bit here, because I think this is one of these words that has gone utterly off the rails in our culture. I want to make an assessment here. I want to make an assessment that truth is just something we're so confused about, and so I want to be utterly clear. Can I make a list for you? Truth is not a matter of tradition. Truth is not a matter of power. Truth is not a matter of opinion. Truth is not a matter of feelings. Truth is not a matter of popular vote. Truth is this, and you can write this down. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. In other words, if it ties in, if it accurately reflects reality, it is truth. Let me give you an example. We're going to do a little counting project. Anyone ready for a little counting this morning? We're going to do some counting. Okay. There's a sign up there. It says, truth be told. We're going to do a counting project together. 
we are going to count how many letters are seen in these words, truth be told. All right, count with me, and we're going to start with one, okay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Someone was going to say 12. I knew it. Throw this man out of here. All right. There's 11 letters up there. There's 11. Here's the truth of how many letters there are up there. There are 11 letters in this sign. And whatever you think and whatever you feel and whatever you want to say will not interrupt or change the fact that there are 11 letters on this sign. Listen, truth is not a matter of tradition. So if you're like, actually, two years, three years ago, 2019, there were 14 letters on the sign, so I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to say, no, you're wrong. That's not your truth. It may be your truth, but it's wrong. Truth is not a matter of tradition. Listen, truth is not a matter of power. Like if Sarah and Mikey came up here and said, excuse me, Brian, we are the directors of this camp. And as the directors of this camp who have the authority are in charge here, we're going to declare that there's eight letters in that sign. You know what they are? They're wrong. Just because they're in charge... Just because they're powerful, just because they're on the stage, doesn't make them right. Do you know that this applies to every other area of life? Just because a media personality or a celebrity on social media or a government powerful individual gets up and says something is true doesn't make it true. Listen, truth is not a matter of power. You don't determine truth by who's in charge and who has the influence and the power. Listen, truth is not a matter of opinion. If you're like, you know, 11, I don't really like the word number 11. 10's more of a round number, so I just feel like for me, there's 10 letters up there. You're still wrong. You're like, that's my truth. Okay, you have a wrong truth. It is incorrect. It is not right. It is not a matter of your opinion. There's 11 letters up there. It's not a matter of opinion. Listen, it's not a matter of feelings. You can't be like, well, my ex-boyfriend's number ended in 11, um, so I'm not, I don't like 11, so I'm not going to go. I just, it feels icky to me, right? Like, it's not a matter of your feelings. And we live in a world that says, like, your feelings are God, so whatever your feelings say, go with. And I want you to know that truth is not a matter of feelings, and then finally, truth is not a matter of popular vote. Like, we could do a vote in this room, like, who votes? There's 20 letters up there, and, like, everyone's all in, including me, and I'm, like, deceived. And even if 100% of us voted, there's still 11 letters up there. Even if 100% of us were wrong, there's still 11 letters up there. You want to know something? Even if 100% of the world, every single Christian gave up their faith and walked away, it's still true that Jesus rose from the dead, period, full stop. The truth is not a matter of popular opinion. The truth is not a matter of what our culture says. The truth is not a matter of how many people in your world and in your life seem to agree with something. The truth is that which corresponds with reality. In other words, when Jesus says that he, that when, when John says that Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone in the world, here's what he wants us to understand. That our job is to see the light. And in seeing the light, we will walk in the truth. It goes on this way in verse 10. It says, he, again, this is Jesus, was in the world. And the world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I want you to see the verbs here. Jesus comes into the world, and the world did not recognize him. The world means everyone, every human being. They didn't recognize who Jesus was. And then in verse 11, he came to that which was his own. That which was his own is God's chosen people of Israel. He comes to Israel, and what does it say? They do not receive him. What are the two things people fail to do with Jesus? They fail to recognize him. They fail to receive him. And why do they fail to recognize and receive him? Because they're not looking for him. Because they're distracted by other things. Because the things of this world have distracted them so much. You know what my great burden is this week for so many of you? It's that you wouldn't be distracted. 
It's that you wouldn't get caught up in something that doesn't matter this week. It's that you wouldn't get so caught up in something like recreation or fun or games, which is such a blast. I love that part of camp. But if that becomes the most important thing this week, you will miss out on what God has for you. Like my burden is that some of you would get distracted by some drama that's going on in your church or with your friends or back home, and you'd be so wrapped up in that you wouldn't recognize and receive Jesus. My burden for some of you is that you would get so obsessed with some guy who's here this week, and that because you're so distracted by that, you would not recognize and receive what Jesus has for you. Uh, Let's just speak honestly. There's a thousand things this week that could distract you, and yet Jesus is going to be here. When I say Jesus is going to be here, I mean Jesus in the power of his spirit is already here encountering us, and the people who recognize it and receive it are the people who are going to have a week that will change their life forever. It goes on this way in verse 12. It says, yet to all who did receive him, through those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Like in other words, when I receive the light, when I receive Jesus, when I walk in the truth, when I see reality and who God is for what it is, something happens to me. And as I become a child of God, adopted into the family of God, forgiven of my sins, it's not just I believe in a philosophy or an idea. God is not just interested in changing your mind. He's interested in changing everything about you. That's what God wants to do this week. And I'm going to say boldly this morning that that's going to happen to some of you. I don't say that because of anything in me or anything at Hume Lake. I say that because the Holy Spirit of God does exactly that. He comes and captures and changes and captures our hearts and captivates us with his love that we would become children of God. And then verse 14, here's where we're in this morning. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is one of the most controversial and outlandish statements in the Bible. See, believing in some kind of God up there isn't super hard. Believing in some kind of supernatural force up there is actually kind of easy. You ever notice every athlete who ever wins the Super Bowl or ever wins a big thing, thanks God, it's real easy. God is this nice generic phrase. You know what happens in John 1.14? It says that God became flesh. It doesn't say he took on a body. In the ancient world, all sorts of gods had bodies. But he says he took on flesh like skin and bones and hair and fingernails. He actually became a human being just like us. The great scandalous claim of Jesus is that Jesus, the eternal God who creates everything, steps into human existence as a human being, a real human being, not some sort of like fake mirage of a human being, but an actual human being. And here is what's so beautiful. What's so beautiful here is it says the word became flesh, and then do you see what it says? It said he made his dwelling among us. The actual Greek behind this says he pitched his tent among us. It it harkens back to when the tent, the tabernacle in ancient um, Israel would be the place where God dwells. In other words, he moves into the neighborhood. He pitches his tent among us. And I want you to notice something. It does not say that we made our dwelling with him. It says that he made his dwelling with us. And I need you to know that this is at the core of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that you found God, but rather God found you. Not that you pursued God, but that God pursued you. He wanted you before you wanted him. He loved you before you loved him. The whole story of the gospel is that Jesus comes into this world to save sinners who wanted nothing to do with him. And you know why that's great news? Because I'm speaking to some people, and I don't know who you are in this room. I just know I'm speaking to someone who's been running from God their whole life. You've been running from God, you've been resisting God, you've been doing your own thing, you've been going your own direction, but if you would stop this week and turn around, you would realize that the God of the universe has never stopped chasing after you. See, that's the good news of the gospel. 
that Jesus makes his dwelling among us. He came running after you long before you came running after him. And then here's how verse 14 ends. It says, we have seen his glory. We've seen Jesus' glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Here's what's amazing. John is going to encapsulate Jesus' whole life. John is going to summarize the entire life and ministry of Jesus. And he could have said he came full of miracles, full of powerful teaching, full of divine power. But that's not what John says. What are the two things that define the life of Jesus according to John? It is grace and it is truth. Grace and truth. And what you should do is if you are a follower of Jesus who is being conformed into the image and likeness of Son, if grace and truth define the life of Jesus, listen to me, grace and truth should define your life too. Two words that I want to end on today. Grace and truth. And here's what I know. Some of you in this room, some of you in this room are truth people. You tell the truth. You know the truth. Some of you grew up in church, you know the Bible, you know what God has to say, and you aren't afraid to say it. You are bold and you are courageous and you are willing to stand for what is true even if no one else believes it. And that is a beautiful thing. But you know what the problem is? Some truth people have no grace whatsoever. So they come off as harsh and condescending and mean and judgmental. They have no patience for people who sin differently than them. And they have no patience or grace for people who have struggles in life that they don't actually have. See, some of you are truth people, but you have no grace. But then let me speak to others of you. And I want to be bold this morning. And I say, I think this is a lot of you. Some of you are grace people. You are filled with kindness and compassion and empathy. No one has ever thought you were judging them. You are inclusive and welcoming and warm. And everyone in your life receives a warm hug and you are for them and you are with them and they know that. And that is a beautiful thing. But you know what the problem is? There are a lot of grace people who have no truth. So you're afraid to say anything controversial. You're afraid to say anything that would upset our culture. You're afraid to say anything that would make you seem narrow-minded or rude or bigoted, and you're so afraid of other people's opinions that you live your life to please them. You are a grace person, but you have no truth. And now here's the danger. The danger is that the grace person goes, you know what, you're right, Brian. I need to be a little less gracious and a little more truthful. And then the truth person goes, you're right, Brian. I need to be a little less truthful and a little more gracious, and we'll kind of balance it out. But here's the deal. Jesus was not the perfect balance of grace and truth. It says that Jesus had the full measure of grace and truth. So what does that mean? If I'm this truth person who has no grace within me, no kindness, no compassion, no gentleness with sinners, no gentleness with people who are still working it through, I don't need to let go of truth, but I need to hold on to grace as well. And if I'm the grace person who has no truth in me, who has no courage, who has no understanding of the rock-solid foundation of truth, I need to hold on to that grace full force and yet hold on to truth as well. So here's what I believe. I believe that God brought you here this week for a reason. You're not just randomly here. Like God brought each and every single one of you here for a reason. And if you are a truth person who is just so filled with truth, I think God brought you here this week so you could see the dazzling, incredible, beautiful, heart-wrenching grace of Jesus for sinners. That's why I think God brought you here. God brought you here so that you could see the grace of Christ. And if you are a grace person so filled with compassion and kindness and yet you don't know truth, I believe God brought you here this week so that you could know the rock-solid, unshakable foundation of God's truth in this world. Jesus, the one from the Father, filled with his glory, is full of grace and truth. This week, I want to challenge you, wherever you're at on that spectrum, wherever you're at on that, I want to encourage you to lean into wherever you feel like God's calling you to grow. 
Maybe even during this breakout discussion time we're about to have where you get into groups as your church or as your, your cabin, you would just confess, you know what, uh, I'm a truth person. I'm not afraid to tell the truth. I always do that. But you know what? I call off as harsh and condescending and mean and rude. And I need to grow in the grace of Christ. And some of you need to confess, you know what? I'm a grace person. I am so merciful and kind and compassionate. And yet I'm never willing to stand up for truth. I'm always afraid of people's opinions. I'm a people pleaser. And I need to grow in truth. Because Jesus is full. The full measure of grace and truth. And if we want to be conformed into the image and likeness of Son, the same should be true for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thank you for these men and women. God, I just want to ask boldly that you would move in their lives this week. I pray for someone in this room who's just so disengaged, doesn't even care about Jesus. God, I pray your spirit would rock their world this week. Father, I pray for those who know and love you, that they would grow in the full measure of grace and truth. God, that we would grow in a graciousness, a kindness, a compassion we see in your son, Jesus but that we would also grow in his truth, that we would be filled with courage and clarity about who you are and what you say in your word. So God, I pray that you would move powerfully this week, that we would all have clarity about why we're here and what you want to do. God, may your grace and your truth prevail this week. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said real loud.